Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Truth and Dare. In this week's study, Lead Pastor David Fossil has us looking at how, since the beginning of time, someone has been attacking us, trying to convince us to live outside God's will. Listen as Pastor Dave shows us what we can expect when we come up with a plan B for our lives, and how we can strengthen our lives so that we won't go outside God's will. About a month ago, I was cleaning out one of my uh, desk drawers that I hadn't looked at for years, and I kind of needed to reclaim the space, and I found a note in that in that desk uh, office um, uh and that, that I had not seen in years. It was a note given to me by a secretary that worked at our church about 15 or so, 16 years ago. Her name was Gail. Some of you may remember her. And I'm going to read to you the note she wrote me, I, I found in that drawer from 16 years ago. Here's what it says. It was the middle of the summer. Here's what she writes, leaves it on, on my desk. She says, Pastor, I wanted you to know that I saw a snake slithering into your office and go behind your bookcase. I tried to get him into a box to remove him, but he was too quick. I think it's poisonous. It's not poisonous, but I can't be sure. I thought you'd like to know. <laughs> you know, in the very first couple pages of this book, Satan is pictured as a snake. And what you need to know is that um, his job description, while he doesn't appear to us as a snake anymore, his job description hasn't changed. In 6,000 years, he, he really is hiding behind the bookcase. He, he really is hiding in the living room. He re- really is hiding at work and hiding at school, waiting and looking for the opportunity to attack God's people. That's his job description, to attack God's people, to do whatever he can to deceive you and to deceive me. To get us to step outside of God's will, to go plan B on God. You know, God's got his plan for our life, but we decide to go plan B and do do our own thing. Satan has won the battle when he convinces you and he convinces me to take matters into our own hands. Now, if you were with us last week as we're going through the story of Abraham, you'll know that that's exactly what Abraham and Sarah did. They had been promised by God that from them they would have a great heritage. God would build a great nation through them. And, you know, Noah, I am Noah. Abraham's almost uh, almost 90 and Sarah's in her 80s. And they're like, you know, you, you don't get 90 and 80 year olds having babies anymore. And so, you know, I, we should probably take matters into our own hand and do our own thing. And so they they basically get a, a servant girl in their in their employ and, and she becomes a surrogate mother and they have a child through her. And they clearly and grossly step outside of God's will and do their own thing. As we get going in our study, what I want to do is kind of review what happened to them and what you can expect when you take matters into your own hand. If you look at your study guide, there's three things that will happen uh, to you and certainly happen to Abraham. Let me show you. Let's put it on the screen. The first thing is, is you will reap the consequences of your actions when you take matters into your own hand. So if you decide... To, to have a, a gallon of ice cream every night after dinner, the consequence of that is you're going to gain 70 pounds. If you choose never to brush your teeth and never to go to the dentist, the consequence of that is going to be cavities. If you choose to drive recklessly and constantly be speeding, the consequences of that is going to be you're either going to hurt someone or you're going to get a ticket. 
If you choose to own a cat and be a 49er fan, the, the Bible says you will lose your salvation. There are consequences. It's in Leviticus. I know it's in there. Um, there are consequences to your actions. Now, here are the consequences to Abraham and Sarah's actions. Their home life begins to fall apart and unravel. And, and, and one of the things we looked at last week is God hey, will forgive you right here. He will fix you right here in your soul. He will clean you and renew you and restore you right here. But around you, you and I continue and get to work and live with the consequences of our mistakes and of our sin. And so you just need to know. Stepping outside of God's will. Choosing to take matters in your own hands. Number one, you and I get to reap the consequences of our actions. Number two, you forfeit spiritual blessing. Every single time God talks to Abraham, he's, he's either talking about one of the two things he promised him right at the beginning in, in Genesis 12. He gave him two promises. From you will come a great nation and you will eventually inherit and possess a great land. Now, the great land is not, you and I refer to it as the promised land or the land of Canaan. And in the land of Canaan, actually in chapter 17, where we're at this morning, he's living in Canaan. He's in the promised land, but he does not possess it yet. He does not own it yet. And one of the reasons he doesn't own it yet and has not enjoyed that part of the promise and that part of the blessing is, is number one, there are some timing issues. But number two, and most importantly, he keeps messing up. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you this promise. I'm going to give you this blessing. Ah, you messed up. I'm going to have to wait a little bit. Here, I'm going to give you this promise. Ah, you messed up again. I'm going to have to hold back. And what you and I don't realize is every single time we step outside of God's will, go plan B on him, take matters in our own hand, you and I are forfeiting some spiritual blessing. Something God wants to give you, he doesn't give you. It's called conditional promises in the Bible. You don't get it unless you fulfill the condition, and the condition is obedience. The third consequence, and this is very interesting. When you take matters in your own hands, you disobey God and step outside of, out of his will. Very often, God seems quiet and he seems distant. Have you ever gone through one of those periods? I read God's word, but I, I can't seem to figure out where he's working. I understand God's plan, but I, I don't see any progress. God seems quiet and he seems distant. You know, one of the mistakes we, meet, we make when we're studying God's word is we don't take the time to understand the concept of time. You go, what does that mean? Let me help you understand and show you why this is so important. The concept of time. Let's put it on the screen. I want to show you our first verse for this morning. Genesis 17.1 starts off, Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him. Now, anytime the writer of God's word gives you a detail that to you seems rather innocuous, normally he's trying to give you a hint as to a very important principle. And the principle that we're going to learn right now is based upon his age. Because you see, the very last verse in chapter 16 we're told that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So you see, when you and I are reading through the book of Genesis, we get to chapter 16, we read through it. That's going to take us two, three minutes. And then we get to the beginning of chapter 17. But the little white space in your Bible between chapter 16 and chapter 17, that little white space that we just kind of skip right over. If it's your own Bible, you need to take a little marker and a pen and write 13 years. 13 years go by between God speaking to Abraham and the next time that there is communion between the two. 13 years. 
Would you agree with me that sometimes we are incredibly impatient with each other, with ourselves, with God? Ever got impatient with God? I think it's so interesting. Every once in a while, you know, we'll, we'll hear some great story on Sunday morning. We'll fill in our blanks. We'll pray the prayer at the end of, of the message. And, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm committed to do that. So we leave here and we go do that. We come back the next week. We're like, Pastor, it's been a whole week and nothing's happened yet. 13 years. 13 years. God brought some of you here this morning just to, 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 so you could hear him say, Chill out. Relax a little bit. It, this whole thing, the spiritual journey and spiritual growth takes time. It takes time. Now, in this case, if we're going to be accurate, the reason God seems quiet and distant is not because he moved. It's because Abraham drifted. Most of the times when we feel distant from God, it's because we're drifting. We're drifting. We've stepped outside of his will. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about how do I, how do I jumpstart my faith? Or how, how do I go from, from a six on a scale of a, a ten to, to an eight? You know, how do I get back on track? If you, if you want to follow along with me on the back side of your study guide, there's two or three things we're going to look at. And, and the first thing, if you're jotting down notes, is, is the first thing you need to do to jumpstart your faith, to get back on track, is to have a God perspective. You got to have a God perspective. I always encourage you to bring your own Bible and circle words and highlight things, but you can follow along on the screen or follow along in your Bibles in, in the in the chairs. It starts out chapter seventeen when Abram was ninety nine years old. The Lord appeared to him, and he said, "I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And then I will make or I will confirm my covenant between me and between you, and I will greatly increase your numbers." There was a college student that was writing home. And uh, wrote this this letter it says, dear mom and dear dad, I'm sorry. It's been so long. I'm writing. Unfortunately, all my stationery was destroyed the night our dorm was set on fire by the demonstrators. I'm out of the hospital now and the doctors say that my eyesight should return sooner or later. The wonderful man, Bill, who rescued me from the fire, kindly offered to share his apartment with me until the dorm was rebuilt. He's a great guy. And so you won't be surprised, mom, when I tell you that we're going to be married. In fact, since you've always wanted grandchildren, you'll be glad to know that in a couple months, you will be a grandmother. Oh, yeah. I also dropped out of school last week so that I could get a job to help support Bill. He hasn't had much luck finding work. I'm hoping I'll be able to finish my college degree sometime after we get married and after we have the baby. Signed, lovingly, your daughter. And then underneath it said, P.S., Mom and Dad, I want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is untrue. There was no fire. I wasn't in the hospital. I'm not pregnant. I don't even have a steady boyfriend. But I did get a D in French and an F in chemistry. And I wanted to be sure you received this news with the proper perspective. <laughs> Would you agree that perspective matters? Perspective matters. The most important perspective you need to have is what's called a doctrinal and theological understanding of who God is. You, you literally have to put on a pair of lenses that sees and understand God for who he is and why that matters to you. When it comes to the character of God, this is not something that just pastor wannabes study at Bible college and seminary. 
Now, this is people like Abraham and Sarah that need to be reminded of the God they've chosen to follow and worship. And right in the beginning of chapter 17, it's almost as, as if God is, is, is tapping on, on, on Abraham's windshield and going, hey, you've forgotten who I am. Maybe some of us have forgotten who he is. Let me show you the two or three things that he points out. It, it, Joy and I were talking about it this week, and we said, we've got to have some songs about the power of God. And we've talked about that this is the first time that, that the, the phrase almighty is used. The word El Shaddai is used to refer to God, reminding us that, that God is not limited in power. That is an important concept. Can you imagine if we had a God that was all wise? He knew the right answer, but he wasn't all powerful to actually be able to do anything about it. Can you imagine that? Can, can, can you imagine a God that, 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 that was all, 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 all powerful, but not all loving? You see, every single character of quality of God impacts you and it benefits you and me. Chapter 16, last week, the whole mess, the whole decision to not stick with God. God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a child. I'm going to build a great nation through you. Trust me. But because Sarah and Abraham did not believe that he really was an almighty God, they went all plan B on him. Chapter 16 and what follows, the disaster that follows for three, four thousand years is all because they do not understand that God is not limited by power. And it's high time that we walk out of here understanding that we got a God that's not just hanging out in heaven. We got a God that is all powerful and he is big enough to fix and solve your issues and your problems. And if he doesn't fix or solve them, he's powerful enough to help you through them. You've got to put on a new pair of lenses. And understand the God that you worship. This, this other phrase, it might seem something weird to, to highlight, but seven times in this chapter, God says, I will. I, I will do this and, and I will do that. And I will go here and I will go there. And I'm going to bless you here and then I'm going to bless you there. I will, I, I will, I will. It's not about Abraham, what you're going to do. No, it's all about what I'm going to do. Again, re reminding us that this whole relationship with God has nothing to do, frankly, by the promises you're making to God and everything to do with the promises he's making to you. It's all initiated by God, reminding us we have a God that is loving and initiates relationship with you. You know, at any point in time between chapter 16 and chapter 17, all Abraham had to do to re-engage with God is build an altar. From week one, we see that as the symbol of Abram trying to connect and commune with God. And every time he refuses to build an altar, and you don't see it in the text, every single time he gets off task. Before he goes to Egypt, no altar. The conversation between him and Sarah about a surrogate mom, no altar. Between chapter 16 and 17, no altar. And that's code for he's off doing his own thing. He's off doing his own thing. And even when you and I go off doing our own thing, God says, I'm going to reinitiate and I'm going to reengage with them because I love them. Which leads us to the last character quality that reminds us, as God says, I'm going to make, I'm going to confirm my covenant, my contract with them. Reminding us that we have a God that, that is faithful and he doesn't bail on us. You know, I don't, I start reading Genesis and I'm thinking, goodness gracious, what, why don't you do what you did with Noah, God? You just kind of did, you grabbed the Etch-A-Sketch and you shook it and you started all over again. Why don't you just do that 
Can't you find someone else other than Abraham? I mean, this guy is a bum. He keeps messing up twice a chapter. And God says, no, that's not how I work. That's not how I worked with Abraham. That's not how I'm going to work with you. Yeah, you might mess up, but I'm not giving up. You have a God that is all powerful. You have a God that is loving and initiates relationship. And you got a God that is faithful and doesn't bail on you. Do you want to take a step to increase your faith? You want to get back on track? You got to put on a new pair of lenses. A new pair of lenses that sees the character of God, that understands the character of God and realizes it's not an academic task. It is a practical life-giving principle. Because it changes the way you think and the way you act when you begin to reflect on the character of God. You've got to have a God perspective. The second thing he says to Abraham and to us is you've got to be willing to make some changes. Now, in your study guide, I've given you just a blank. There's so many different things in here. You write in whatever you think God wants you to do. Let me just read the text for you and then we'll talk about a couple things. It says, it's still the first couple verses, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And then you drop down to verse 5 if you're following along in your Bibles. No longer uh, will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And then later in verse 16, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, she will no longer be called Sarai, her name will be Sarah. Now, I just want to talk to you about some of the highlighted words and what they imply about changes God is asking you to make. Let's talk about the first idea. God says to Abraham and he says to you, I need you to make a change. From now on, I want you to walk with me. What the heck does that mean? Well, that is code in the Bible and makes a big differentiate in the Bible between living with God, believing in God, knowing God and walking with God. Walking with God is that idea that I have a constant daily relationship with God. Where I go, he goes. Where he goes, I go. That's the kind of relationship he wants with you. He doesn't want a once a week, just on Sunday kind of relationship. No, I want to walk with you. When you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, I want to go with you. When you go back to your family, I want to go with you. When you're sitting watching TV, I want to watch the same movie you're watching. And you see, the minute you start realizing that he wants that kind of relationship with you, would you agree with the type of movies you watch maybe change based upon the idea, you know, he's sitting right next to you on the couch. I want to walk with you. I want this daily and genuine. I want it to be a real and authentic relationship. Don't just come to me on special occasions. I want to walk with you. I also want you to be blameless. If you're jotting down notes, you need to make sure and write down blameless does not mean sinless. Because I hear that word and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, he wants us to be like, you know, Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. I don't know. I can pull that off. That's not what that means. The word blameless in God's word refers to the idea of fighting for purity. That's blameless. I'm fighting for purity. The problem with so many American church going Christians is so many of us have just we, we've we've taken a knee. We've waved the right flag. We roll over. We play dead when it comes to certain purity issues. We've just decided, yeah, you know, that that cussing thing I have, that that temper thing I have, it's just my personality. You know, I got it from my family. We all we're all like that. And we just kind of live with it. You know, that that lust thing, you know, and that that those that that porn thing, you know, I'm not really hurting anybody. Everybody's doing it. So I'm just going to do it, too. 
I, you know, I really can't control my drinking. I really can't control my drugs or my pot smoking. So instead of feeling guilty about it, I'm just going to do it. The rest of my life I'll give to God, but this one area I'm going to keep to myself. I've just decided I'm going to live with pride. I'm going to live with lust. I'm going to live with gluttony. I'm going to live with anger. Pick your favorite sin. I'm going to give 95% to God. I'm going to try and clean up 95%. And I'm going to keep 5% in the basement. Do whatever I want. He says, no. I want you to be blameless. I want you to fight. Some of us are languishing in our faith because you're not fighting anymore. If you're not fighting for something in your soul, I, I can tell you right now, we don't need a meeting. Don't call me for an office appointment. I can tell you right now. You are languishing if your faith, if you're not fighting for the purity of your soul. See, until you and I are face to face with Jesus, you have a sin nature and so do I, which means we have a propensity to certain sins. Some of them we're really good at. And if you're not fighting them, if you're not trying to wrestle and conquer them and get control over them, your faith is languishing. But the minute you re-engage in the battle, you watch your faith walk grow. You watch it grow. Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God, reminding us that this spiritual journey is a constant battle. So I'm going to ask you, what are you battling? What purity issue are you battling in your soul? And your issue may not be my issue or the person next to you. Like I said, we all have different propensity and different sins. We all have something. Re-engage in the battle. You may lose occasionally, but you don't want to take a knee and wave the white flag. God says, I want you to make some changes. I want you to walk with me daily. I want you to be blameless. Re-engage and fight for purity. And oh, by the way, I also want to change your name. What, what the heck is what the name changes in the Bible, by the way? Abra, Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. I mean, this is so complicated. I got to change the checks. I got to change my Facebook page. I got to do the driver's license all over again. Do we really have to do this? What is going on with this? Well, in that culture, your name uh, always reflected who, who your background or your profession or something that had happened to you. Or, or, or something in your family lifeline. It was made to, 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 to tell someone a, a little bit about who you were, right? So sometimes there were name changes like that. And, and, and when it comes to the Bible, God changes people's names when, when a couple things happen. Either their role changes in the kingdom. So what their job is changes. He goes, I want to change your name. Or the relationship that they have with God changes. I want to change your name. Or, or, or they, their character changes. I want you to be a different person. I want to change your name. And they changed their name because God says, from now on, I want you to remember your new role. I want you to remember our new relationship. I want you to remember your new character quality. I want you to remember. And, oh, by the way, the rest of us reading a couple thousand years later, we get to figure out and understand the story a little more. And that's what's happening here. He changes their name because their role changes and the relationship changes and character changes. Let me show you the Hebrew definitions of the four words. Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah. Abram means exalted father, literally big daddy, which is already quite embarrassing. Big daddy, what's going on? For 80 years, he has no kids. Well, why are they calling you big daddy? It gets worse, though. God says, we're not going to call you big daddy anymore. Now we're going to call you father of many nations. Oh, I only got one kid, God. I know, trust me. Our relationship has changed. We're going to take it up a notch. 
Sarai. It's kind of interesting. Some Hebrew scholars say that the word Sarai means the same as Sarah, which makes absolutely no sense, because why would God do that? You dig a little deeper and you find out that there are some variances in what the word Sarai means. Sarai literally means contentious. She's a nag. She's a nag. Now, let me just be clear. Wives can be nags. Husbands can be nags. All the women said, yes, yeah, that's it. You can say it. I know you're sitting right next to him, but he knows. You know, old people can be nags. Young people can be nags. doesn't matter the color of your skin. We can be contentious. God says to Sarah, you know what? No more. From now on, I'm going to call you princess. Act like it. Do you realize God is more interested in changing you than blessing you? I hate that part of the Bible, but it's true. He's more interested in changing you than blessing you. Making you successful. Do you also know he wants to change your name? Oh, not literally, not the thing that's on your birth certificate, but he wants to change the name that people have been calling you for all these years. Think about what people call you now to your face or behind your back. Think about what they called you years ago. She's cold. He's selfish. Unbearable. She's a cheat. He's promiscuous. Gossip. He's a flake. She's argumentative. She's a hothead. She's a pothead. She's difficult. They're a jerk. Those names have been leveled against you. And God says, I want to change your name. I don't want that to be your name anymore. I want your new name to be righteous. I want it to be pure. I want them to call you gentle and kind. I want them to call you patient. And the kicker, the really good part. You know what I want them to call you? I'm going to give you the surname of my son. I want them to call you Christian. I want to give you a new name. There's one more thing God changes. And just to be complete, I want to make sure you see it. Let's put the next slide up. He says in verse 3 and in verse 17, he said, we read that Abram fell face down. And God said to him, literally gets on his knees and he puts his hands on the ground. He puts his face to the ground. And then in verse 17, Abram fell face down and he laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? They're still struggling with this issue. Now, we're going to get to the laughter thing in a couple of weeks. So it's very interesting. But what I want to point out to you right now is the posture that Abraham is willing to take with God. He humbly kneels and puts his face to the ground and his palms to the ground. Now, this is a posture of humility, acknowledging who God is. I got to tell you, every once in a while, I hear people talk about God and they refer to God as he's my BFF. He's my homie. He's the big man in the sky. And, you know, that kind of a cavalier attitude now we do are and are to call him dad or daddy so there is an intimate relationship with him but sometimes it just feels too cavalier and while i hey i'm glad he's your friend that's good but you best never forget he's the creator of the universe for those of us who have been church going christ following people for a long time when's the last time you did that literally or spiritually you know we clean up and we mature up and we dress up and we start to believe the press that other people are saying about us don't you ever forget 
don't you ever forget that you and I don't deserve what we have. We don't deserve it. You guys know me. You know I'm a sports fan. I mean, I, I like all sports. Other, other than sumo wrestling, I like all sports. I don't know why I said that. That wasn't in my notes, but it's true. And uh, I, I uh, you know, I got to got to learn baseball when I came back as a teenager from from Europe, and um, took me a while to kind of get the game. And one of my favorite seasons was the spring of 1995 for about two three weeks. And if you're a baseball fan, you'll know what happened. That there was these contract talks, negotiation talks between the owners and the players. And it's always about the same thing, right? They're always arguing about money and who gets this and who gets that. And they were arguing about money. And they both decided to play hardball. And the players decided, okay, if you don't renegotiate the contract and change a couple of things, we're not playing. And the owner said, okay, we don't need you. And so the season started. And none of the professional players showed up. And so the owners, they decided to hire what, is, what came to be called as replacement players. Okay? And, and now, to understand, these replacement players, they weren't minor leaguers. They weren't guys that were young and eventually would play in the majors. No, no, because the minor leaguers weren't playing either. The replacement players were guys that had last week been playing uh, on, on, the, on the community softball team. They were gym teachers, you know. They were guys that used to play 15 years ago. And it, I got to tell you, it was one of the most entertaining two weeks of baseball I have seen. It was one of the most god-awful baseball I've seen, but very entertaining. <laughs> Hardly ever would a ball get into the outfield. When a guy tried to stretch out a double, they would stretch out a double, and they would get to second base, and they'd be like... One of the coaches was quoted as saying, my pitchers throw so slow, the radar gun can't even figure out how fast they're throwing. But you watch these guys, and they were just having a blast. They were living a dream. The previous week, they'd been Little League coaches, and the following week, they were wearing Yankee jerseys and Red Sox jerseys and Giant jerseys. They were living their dream. And as the story was told by newspaper reporters, these guys would show up to the ballpark before anyone else did, before the ground crew would show up. They were there. They would go into the, you know, where they would wash the clothes and they would help the attendants wash the uniforms. They would be thanking everybody for all their work. At the end of the game, there was a, there was a line longer of players willing to sign autographs than fans that wanted autographs. <laughs> they were living a dream. They knew they made it on luck. They knew they didn't deserve what they'd been given. They knew that they weren't chosen to be part of the team because they were good. They were chosen to be part of the team because they were available. Just like Abraham. And just like you and me. We're part of God's team, not because we're good. But because we're available and willing and so one of the things God says, you want to jumpstart your faith? You, you best change your attitude toward me. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're friends. But I am the almighty God, creator of the heavens and the earth. And you best either do that literally or you better do it spiritually. Because this thing called worship is not just us singing songs before Dave comes up. You are to worship me for who I am. Make some changes. Like turn your phone off. Okay, so third thing. <laughs> so, the third thing he says is you got to go all in you got to go all in okay all in is a poker term right poker term and when when someone when a card player says i i'm not gonna hold anything back i'm gonna put everything in right 
all full commitment. He says, I want full commitment for you. And here's what we read. Okay, Uh, starting in verse 10, if you want to follow. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. And here's what I want you to do. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Aren't you so excited you got to come to church on circumcision day? You know, if you're a brand new person, you're like, what is going on with this church? You know, by the way, this is one of the reasons I love the way we study God's word. We either go through a book of the Bible or in this case, we're going through Genesis 12 to 20 something. Right. And it forces us to talk about these passages. I mean, if I just on any old Sunday decide, okay, this is where we're going to talk about circumcision. You would be sitting there going, what is wrong with this man? He is an idiot. You may be thinking that more often than not. But in this case, it's just the next verses. And you know, what is what is going on here? Here's what's going on. When they had a contract or a covenant in those days, you had to have a, a, a way of, of solidifying the contract. In our day, if we have a contract, that we have an agreement, what do we do? Let's shake on it. If it's informal, we can shake on it. If it's more formal, it's a bigger deal. What do we do? We draw up papers and you write a signature and I write a signature and we have it notarized. In this case, God is thinking to himself, okay, I want to make sure that no one jumps on the bag wagon just because. I want to make sure that they really want to do this. I want to make sure that there's no flakes for me. What can I? I know what I'll do. And that's how this goes. Huh? Let's read on. Let's put the next slide up there. Okay. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner or those who are even not your offspring. In other words, if they're your employees, they got to do it as well, right? Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has a broken, he has broken my covenant. So God says, either way, you're going to get cut off. You know, either I'm just being biblical. I'm just being biblical. Now, why is this happening? Why is this? Honestly, what is going on here? One of three reasons. One, there could be health considerations. Now, modern medicine does not confirm that. But in those days, and this is just to be as honest as I can, in a day and age where you barely bathed once or twice a month, that is a health consideration. Number two, Jewish distinctiveness. God says, I want you to be different. I want you to be fundamentally different than people who don't call themselves God followers. Different. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this passage, and I don't want to read into this text where it isn't, but I I do want to say this for the moment. I don't think it's not a mistake that God chooses the male sex organ to identify the idea of being different. If there's ever a time where I stand up before the men and say, you best be different, it's in the area of your sexuality. You are not to be like the guys in, in the locker room. You are not to be the guys in the office both in what you do and what you say and what you think about. I want you to be different. And if there's ever an area where the world criticizes and laughs and calls us hypocrites, it's in this area. Because we will come to church, we will worship and raise our hands, and we will go out of here and sleep with whoever we want. You must remember sex was given as a gift to be enjoyed between husband 
and wife. And that's it. Be different. There's health considerations. There's Jewish distinctiveness. And honestly, what I think is the primary and the biggest reason, I want you to go all in with me. I want you to be fully committed to me. By the way, if I'm Abraham, not too happy about this. And I say that because of what he's, he's heard so far. See, God has had one other contract, one other covenant. The covenant with Noah. And the sign of that covenant was a rainbow. And Abraham's like, he got a rainbow and I'm getting this? Can't I have like a pony in the sky or something? What's going on? By the way, and I, I, just, I just want to be clear. Some men may be confused. This is not a requirement that God still has for us. You know, that would be rather interesting. Hey, come to our men's breakfast next Saturday. You know, we got bacon and eggs devotional and circumcision in the prayer room right after. Just join us. That would be great. I don't think there'd be a lot of signups. Now, I can keep going into Old Testament and what and why and how. What I want to do is I want to talk to you about the three ways, honestly, that this matters to everyone. Women are like, I want to see how he taps dance his way out of this. Watch. Okay. The first one, the first one is you must be committed to salvation. Committed to salvation. What the New Testament writers do is they take the Old Testament rite of circumcision, spiritualize it, and help you understand that there was so much more intended with this. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you've gone through the ceremony of, uh, of circumcision. No, a true Jew, in other words, a true follower of mine is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely by obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's spirit. So what happens is Jesus lives his life, he gets crucified, he comes back from the dead, and all these Jewish people start to follow him. But they also bring their Jewish ways with them. And so you've got some Jewish people saying, you want to be saved? Here's what you need to do. You need to have faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and you got to get circumcised. And Paul says, you're an idiot. Don't you understand that what circumcision was in the Old Testament, in the flesh, salvation, and, the, the, and what the Holy Spirit does in your heart, that's the true circumcision. It's not something outwardly that happens. It's what happens inwardly. Colossians chapter 2, he adds, when you came to Christ, notice, you were circumcised. All of you. But something else happens. Look, it was not a physical procedure. Christ perform a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. What was cutting away of the flesh in the Old Testament now is cutting away of that portion of your heart that gives you a propensity to sin and says if there's ever a time when you can live victoriously for Jesus Christ is when you've done a commitment to salvation. And there's someone here that's going, why is my faith not what it is or should be? You haven't done step one. It's literally the heart circumcision of giving your life to Jesus Christ. And everybody must do it. You don't do step one, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. The, the second thing, and this is a big word, but it's important. It's a commitment to sanctification. A commitment to sanctification. Let's put the next slide up there. Sanctification is just a big word that means becoming like Jesus Christ. But it's an important word. 
It means obeying Jesus Christ. It means you change into someone who is more godly this week than you were last week. Sanctification. And it involves obedience. Now, what I want to point out to you, if you have your Bibles, I do not have these verses on the screen, is I want you to look at Genesis 17, 23. Because this is a passage on sanctification. I want you to listen carefully what happens here. And then I'm going to point out the key, the key phrase. It says, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money every male in his household and circumcised them as God told you. Now listen to verse 24. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. Don't, I've been telling you since week one, faith is trusting and obeying God in spite of consequences. For a 99-year-old dude, I can't think of anything more severe than this. Obey me, even when it hurts, even when you don't want to, even when the circumstances don't seem to fit. Obey me, that's faith. That's faith. Verse 25, and his son Ishmael was also 13. Abraham, his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. Every uh, every male in Abraham's household, they estimate it was about 2,000 men on one day. Including those born in his household, or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. You go, what does this have to do with obedience and sanctification? It's the first four words of verse 23. You see the first four words? On that very day. No questions. No arguing. No, let me sit down with my pastor and talk it through. No, let me get in my small group and let's pray about it. No. See, one of the things we need to understand is that delayed obedience is really a form of disobedience. Delayed obedience is a form of disobedience. If God speaks to you, if God challenges you, if God gives you something he wants you to work on, do or change, and you walk out of here and you decide to wait a week, to wait a month, wait a year to implement it, that's a form of disobedience. And I want to challenge you to be like Abraham. On that very day, he obeyed. So I'm going to ask you the question. What's one thing God wants you to do that you keep delaying? You keep waiting. It's not the right time yet. God says, you know what? I want you to go all in. And all in means you're committed to sanctification and obedience now. Not until you have it all figured out right now. The last one, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, is commitment to multiplication. In this passage, in every time God speaks to, to Abraham, every single time, he always reminds him that the why I'm blessing you is not just for yourself. It's so that you can be a blessing to others. Okay? Um, you need to realize that some of us are, are languishing in our faith, not because you haven't done bullet point number one, because you're saved. Thumbs up, you're in. It's not because you haven't done bullet point number two. You're growing in Christ. You're obeying Jesus. You're trying to become more godly. It's because you're not doing bullet point number three. You've made faith all about you. You've made church all about you. And what God wants to remind us this morning is it's also about that coworker friend you have that you've never talked to about Jesus. It's also about that classmate that's a buddy of yours, a friend of yours, you've never invited to youth group. It's also about your family members and your neighbors and all those people in your life that are not followers of Jesus Christ. You see, I'm blessing you, not just for you. I'm blessing you so you could multiply your faith. I want you all in. All in with me. Now, here's what we've learned so far. Let's put it on the screen, our summary slide. Got to have a God perspective, got to make some changes, 
And you've got to go all in with God, full commitment. Let me tell you one closing story, and then I'm going to apply it to this. We're going to wrap up. I um, read a story about a customs officer, and uh, he, he worked at the border, and he saw this guy pull up in a big truck. And, you know, he'd been a customs officer for so long, he knew something was fishy. So he had the guy get out, and he did the mirror underneath the truck, and he pulled off the panels, and he looked. He found no contraband, found nothing illegal. He waved him through. Two, three weeks later, the same guy showed up again. And again, he could just tell something's wrong. And so he pulled him down, and, and, and this time it was more careful. They took off the tires, and they and he pulled a, a couple other agents in. They checked it all out. Two, three hours later, they couldn't find anything. They put the tires back on and waved them through. This happened literally every three to four weeks, uh, every three to four weeks for four years. And the customs officer uh, was about ready to retire. In in those four years, I mean, they'd done everything. Full body searches, x-rays, sonars, they never found anything. And he's about ready to retire. And the same guy pulls up in the truck and he says, you want me to get down? He goes, no, just stay in the truck. But let me ask you a question. He says, I know you're smuggling something. I'm about ready to retire. Just tell me. For my peace of mind, just tell me. And, and I, I promise I won't turn you in. I promise I won't tell anybody. Just tell me what you're smuggling. And the driver has a wry smile on him. He says, okay, I'll tell you. You're not going to like it, but I do. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm smuggling stolen trucks. <laughs> now, here's my point in telling you that story. Sometimes the most important thing is right in front of you. It's right in front of you. Honestly, I don't think I've taught you anything new this morning. Oh, you've learned some details about Abraham's life. Good. But those three points I've heard in church for years. Haven't you? Okay, yeah, we got to have a God perspective. I got to know who he is and make sure I apply that to my, I got to make some changes. I got to keep being godly and I got to be fully committed. Nothing new. It's just like the truck. It's right in front of you. It's right in front of you. You want to jumpstart your faith? Maybe the answer is not finding out new truths about God. Maybe the answer is applying what I already know about him. I'm going to look at life with a new perspective and remember who God is and why he makes a difference. I'm going to make some changes. I'm going to walk with God. I'm going to fight for purity. And even if it hurts, I'm going all in with God. Let's close in a word of prayer. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to give you a moment. I want you to think about what you heard today. If you need to peek back at the summary slide, I want you to do that. I want you to identify one thing that you feel God is challenging you with and speaking to you about this morning. I could care less about the notes you filled out. You're going to lose those eventually or throw them away. I want you to get one thing that filters from your mind into your heart. One thing that will help you grow in faith. Pick one thing. And I want you to take 15 to 20 seconds and talk to God about the commitment and the decision or the change you're making today. Take a moment and talk to God about that.
Dear Heavenly Father, you know how these last two, three weeks I've really enjoyed study time and looking at stories that I know about that I, but I've never studied and seeing the, the, the dots connecting and understand what's happening. Father, I would pray for myself. I would pray that what I've studied and what I've learned would not just be intellectual understanding of the book of Genesis and the life of Abraham. Father, I pray that for me and all my friends this morning, all my brothers and sisters in Christ, that it would be life-changing. This isn't just a story about Abraham. This is a story about us. Father, I pray that you would challenge and convict us to be different. I pray that we would take a step up and upgrade our relationship with you. Father, so much this morning. Father, more than anything else, I'm so grateful that you continue to work in our lives. Abraham messed up last week. And 13 years went by. But every day of those 13 years, you wanted to re-engage with him, just like you do with us. Father, for a moment right now, I want to pray for friends that we have, for family members that we have that are in the middle of their 13 years right now. Maybe it's just 13 days or 13 weeks, but they've drifted from you. Father, whether you use us or whether you use others in our life, Father, I pray that you would bring them back. Help them get to chapter 17 as quickly as possible. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. All God's people said. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.